What's going on, everyone? Maiko back with another episode of Hobby Talk. It's been a year, but finally, Filmington is back. What's up, Phil? Hey, what's going on, Mike? Thanks for having me on. Definitely uh, good to have you back. The last time we did a uh, episode here on Hobby Talk, well, things were about to get pretty crazy, not just in the world, not just in our country, but in the sports card market. Things have gone bananas. We recorded just a few days uh, before the whole pandemic kind of really took everything to a whole nother level last year, right before the NBA season was suspended. And then, of course, other leagues followed suit. Things uh, things went a little crazy, a lot of uncertainty in this country, in the world, really. And that was true to be said about the sports card market, too. Things you know, were unclear. No one really knew what to expect. Uh, including both of us, I think we could both admit that there was definitely like a 10-day dip in the market as people tried to figure out what was going on, and then things exploded, and they've just kind of continued to uh, grow exponentially. Do you have any words to describe what's going on, Phil? Well, it's been almost surreal, especially looking back at it. It seems to me like it's very cloudy, but it seems to me like it's been more than a year that's passed, but... Yeah, I remember recording that initial episode with you and um, we had to kind of, you had to include a, a blurb at the beginning when you posted it um, <laughs> because it was certainly a little um, tone deaf. I don't know if that's the right word, but it was uh, additional context was needed given um, everything that ensued afterwards. Uh, we thought the world was going to end. We thought the hobby was going to end. And all of a sudden it ended up being, you could argue, one of the better things that's ever happened to the hobby in a very long time. Now, probably not from everybody's perspective because wax is almost impossible, if not impossible to find, especially at retail stores. But uh, I think as a whole, it's been a positive for a lot of us. Yeah. I mean, definitely if you had a sizable collection or an investment lot or whatever you had beforehand and you didn't blow it all out of the water during that 10 day stretch, you're obviously looking pretty good um, from that perspective, but I guess there's a lot of factors uh, that went into the way things ended up developing. Not that we necessarily foresaw that, of course, because I think we were all kind of just concerned uh, for ourselves, for our families, for everyone's well-being, and just kind of to see how things were going to actually go in the real world. Um, and then now you can kind of take a step back and you look at it, and uh, obviously a serious situation, but probably not as bad as it could have potentially been. Things certainly could have been uh been much worse even though obviously a lot of uh a lot of bad things have gone down, a lot of suffering for people around, but sports card uh collectors and investors and such uh really not part of that group. So many different factors that ended up playing into it and a lot of it was time. People had some more time to uh to find things to do, so a lot of people had a chance to kind of rekindle their uh, love of sports cards and their interest in sports cards. Uh, so that, plus, you know, you kind of looked at it at the time and you're like, oh, well, are people going to have jobs and such? What's going to happen with the economy? And it turns out, uh, of course, there were some stimulus payments and such and uh, bonus payments for unemployment. And I think those are, of course, factors. But really, the thing that I think we didn't really consider was how much money people would be saving from not going out to eat as much as they might, not blowing uh, a wad of cash at the bar on a Friday and Saturday night, not going to sporting events, not going to movies and such. And 
seems like a lot of that money went into sports cards. So those are uh, some factors you would agree with, with uh, which helped uh, kind of boost this hobby a little bit on top of the uh, growth we had seen over the course of years. It wasn't something that popped out of nowhere, but it definitely uh, exploded onto a whole new level. Right. Yeah. And, and, and over the last three or four months, people have been um, publicly calling sports cards and collectibles an alternative asset class. And um, I think the, the the stimulus payments certainly help get some money in those areas into alt assets such as sports cards, uh, cryptos and other things. I also think that the, the low interest rate environment, people are less likely to, to put their money into a uh, savings account to have it waste away as the uh, the rate of inflation outpaces their their interest rate in their with their bank um yeah there's a lot of positive factors here and we're in what you could argue an inflationary environment with uh current fiscal policy and uh people are looking for for ways to protect their money um so that's when people look towards commodities or real estate um potentially cryptos or maybe even baseball cards. So here we are. And I think the more the momentum builds, the more people get involved. I mean, of course, you're going to have people who are truly interested in the hobby, truly interested in the cards. And we've seen that uh, through little spikes with the 90s, the 80s and 90s stuff where people are kind of rekindling their childhood, buying back cards that they used to have in their collection or that they always wanted to have in their collection. But on top of that, uh, the more press the more exposure the hobby gets, which it's getting more than it used to. I mean, you'll see stuff about sports cards on MLB network, NBA network, uh, ESPN. I've seen that. I saw them talking about that, like $4 million patch auto, whatever it was. Cause I don't really follow the basketball stuff too much. Uh, I've seen stuff on Fox business and CNBC and you see mentions in different publications and of course the celebrities out there so you have a lot of other people um kind of with with that are looking for a way to of course boost some cash the uh the flippers if you want to call it some people they just see the big numbers and they just think it's a uh, get rich quick scheme possibly so more and more people are kind of flooding in which is all just kind of collecting this uh this mass amount of uh, crazy momentum as prices continue to uh, rise substantially and fairly consistency. Yeah. And I think <clears throat> the advent of fractional ownership makes cards available to a greater um, amount of people, especially the higher end cards. I think in January we saw somewhat of a trickle trickle down effect from a lot of <clears throat> a lot of those higher end cards that are getting scooped up and people are thinking, well, you know, a PSA nine was, X percent of a PSA 10 before. So that ratio must stand. And you see like the PSA nine, I'm making it up like base um, Kobe Bryant tops, Chrome and tops paper rookies start to increase at a similar pace to the PSA tens. And um, yeah. And then the rumor, rumor has it that there's investment groups that are buying up, um, deploying their capital and buying up uh, large, large quantities of cards um, at a high scale in order to fill their investment funds. So that's, uh, that's certainly a thing too. Um, I know you mentioned that um, some of these people uh, I've been making this mainstream being featured on several TV shows. I saw last week, I was watching good morning America and the, the Brady sale, the 1.3 million uh, contenders championship ticket uh, sale was featured on that. I've seen golden. He was on CNBC. Gary V has been on CNBC a few times. 
Uh, I think Gary, Gary V has been um, not obviously a majority of the cause, but I think of all influencers, he might not have the greatest reach out of all influencers. If you factor in um, Steve Aoki and some of the other more celebrity type figures that have um, stepped into the space. But I think he has his, his network is more likely to listen to him and to invest money based on his direction. So I think Gary Vee has been very influential here. Yeah, he's got a huge audience of people who are extremely interested in the entrepreneurial um, kind of flip game, the uh, buy and resell type of deal, business kind of, uh, even if they're not experienced, they have that entrepreneurial spirit. So I do think he plays a role in people actually putting their money in. Um, of course, the other guys, you know, more people hear about it and think about it, but they might get distracted moments later where I think the Gary Vee people might literally, while they're listening to him, be on eBay or whatever site, you know, kind of doing some immediate research and thinking about it. So it's uh, it's definitely not something I expected a couple years ago. I mean, I continued to see the hobby grow and I thought it would continue to grow, but never at this pace. I never anticipated having people I know you know, start talking to me about cards and be like, I didn't even know this people knew these people knew like cards even existed anymore. So it's been, uh, it's been nuts. Yeah. I remember looking back at my collection before COVID and my mindset going into a purchase, I thought like, you know, $2,000 was an incredible amount of money for me to spend on a card. But now it's like, it's peanuts. Now that equivalent, um, sentiment is like, is like for like an $8,000 card or maybe even more. Um, I remember people <laughs> responding to some of my videos when I showed some Soto stuff that I picked up for five, 600 bucks saying like, wow, I, um, I, I guess I haven't been fortunate enough to spend as much as Filmington does on a single card. I'd never be able to do that. And I see the same person flashing, you know, 12, $1,300 cards, just like six months later. And I forget if this was before COVID or afterwards, but yeah, we've seen some uh, ridiculous growth for sure. Yeah, $2,000, you can buy, barely buy a case of cards anymore. Like oh, God. It used yeah. to be. I mean, and that's kind of, you know, where I want to go next. Like, where does the market go from here? Is it, is it still going to fly high? Is it still going to soar? Is it is it going to drop to nothing? Is it just going to correct a little bit? I, I mean, who knows? I mean, how quickly do people get priced out and get fed up? Or did just more and more people with money come in or there's expectations, like you said, someone who used to only, you know, their threshold was maybe $100 on a card. Suddenly it's 1000 because people see that perceived value. So it's not it's not as big of a deal. It's like, okay, I'm dropping 1000 But if I need to, I can get that $1,000 back kind of on demand and quite honestly, possibly maybe turn it into 1500 or so. I mean, there's, there's obviously a lot of factors, but I mean... Surely uh, things can't continue to ascend forever, but I guess they could for a little while. Yeah, I, I uh, spent a little bit of time today actually looking at the Kobe Bryant tops rookie in a PSA 10. Just because I'm, I've been kind of fascinated by um, some of the, the movements. And fortunately, the tools available to us in the hobby like market movers and card ladder. Um, <laughs> I was able to get this data a lot quicker. Uh, but Kobe Bryant PSA 10 tops rookie before he died was... It was about 200 bucks. He passes away. It turns into a $1,500 card. And then it retraces sharply down to 500. And then it goes from 500 to 2000 a few months later, probably before the last dance. Um, and then it drops from 2000 to 1500. And then it goes a few months later from 1500 to 5500. 
Uh, that was probably in October, November, I'm guessing. And then it drops um, quickly to 2,200 in December. And then most recently went from 2,200 to 10,000. And then it dropped over the last couple of weeks back down to 6,000. So I guess the patterns that I saw were when it drops precipitously, it, it's still at a higher point than where it started for like that phase. And at worst, it's it's like what the previous high was. So like when the drop happens, it's like not dropping below the previous high. It's either falling equivalent to the previous high or, or just above the previous high watermark. So it, it looks like <laughs> if you were to compare this and look at like stocks or commodities, like it looks like pretty healthy market behavior um, because it's it's establishing it has to establish a new floor in order to find higher highs. Um, and it's never dropping by more than like, well, I guess at the beginning, but recently hasn't dropped more than like 50 or 60%, which is peanuts. Unless you bought during that run up, then you're kind of like, Oh shit. But then you just wait till the next run up, which happens two or three months later. So I don't know if that's a sign of things to come, but I think like this type of correction behavior, I think it's, I think it's healthy for uh, sports cards, you'd see the same thing like the Michael Jordan PSA 9. I thought it was crazy that that reached like high 80,000s, maybe about 90,000, talking about the 86 FLIR. And that's down about 40% to maybe even 50% close to like 47K right now. But 47K is a lot higher than where it started just a few months ago. So if you were to look at like the performance over three months, it's still up. Um, and then you can you can see the same thing with like LeBron. It's very similar even though he's a modern player and he's affected by technically should be affected by other factors like performance and how his team's doing. But um, yeah, I don't know if that's a sign of things to come and that's only looking at the goats. Uh, the goats have done as a whole very well over the last few months. It seems like in, in January um, and you probably saw this too, but everybody was focused on like the established goat like players, like goat kind of implies that there's only one for each sport. I feel like people are, using a loose definition of goat to, to, yeah, there's, uh, there's certainly multiple goats in, uh, in most people's, uh, mind, it seems. Right. Like I, I heard somebody refer to Ovechkin as a goat for hockey, but if you look at most lists online, he's not like a top 10 all time player. You know, I know he's going to break a, a pretty important record pretty soon. People expect him to do that, but yeah. So I guess people are, um, people are targeting the top 10 to 20 players of the sport. It seems like, for some sports, maybe they just target the top one or two. And um, maybe that was a symptom of those players being undervalued relative to the guys that are on like, you know, the ultra modern guys that have hundreds of variations of rookie cards that um, have a ton of risk with them that aren't established yet. Um, the Luka Doncic's of the world, the, the Juan Soto's, et cetera. Um, although we have seen some some run up with the, the baseball card, uh, the baseball season coming with a lot of those ultra modern players for baseball. I don't know, man. I mean, I was I was wrong last time uh, when I tried to predict the future for the hobby. And I assume I'll be wrong this time. <laughs> but um, I don't see like a, a crash being imminent this time, at least. I don't really see that um, being the case unless you were to look at uh potentially an abundance of scarcity type thing going on with all the NFTs and all the attention kind of diluting um, the values from the, the main four to five core sports that we used to all collect and spend most of our money on most of our time on 
we're most interested in. Now you have people spending money on wrestling cards, F1 cards, surfer cards, um, sports card illustrated, you name it, Marvel. Um, Pokemon was already a pretty established market, but all this stuff that you would never expect to see in PSA slabs, which I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll see those coming back in about 16 months. Yeah, it's, it's, there's certainly more sports getting attention, but I, I kind of feel like that's probably a good thing for, uh, the hobby. I, I do think some of the all time greats should be fairly safe. Um, especially with so many big players involved in the hobby nowadays. And we continue to call it a hobby, even though that is becoming a very loose uh, loose definition or loose word to use. I think one of the problems with the previous crash, I, I, I think baseball was by far the number one sport at that time. I don't think the other sports got nearly as much uh, attention or credit. And yep. it wasn't just... I mean, obviously overproduction was a key and probably the key factor. Uh, and production numbers are going to continue to rise, but there's just so much more variety with short prints, with parallels, and all these different products that I, I don't th think it's going to reach uh, the substantial numbers that they did in the late 80s, early 90s. But it all kind of, at least in from what I remember, it kind of correlated really strongly with the baseball strike in 94, I, I feel like that was another huge factor that some people sometimes don't really consider. I, at least that's my recollection of kind of things really going sour during that time. So I think that was a big factor too, with the last time things really took a major hit and you know, that's what happens with a lot of stuff. People start panicking and they just drive the market down. And once the market's driven down, there's a, certain percentage of people who are going to going to lose interest because that's one of the driving forces of them being involved in the hobby you know of course there's always going to be people who don't care about the money side of things so we'll see uh what happens this time around obviously things can't continue to rise forever but there's probably a lot of room for growth i mean just think it still really isn't at the same level of attention as it was uh Years and years ago, you know, 20 years ago, in terms of mainstream popularity, it's getting there. It's gaining more and more attention. But, I mean, obviously no one knows the future because, well, if we did, we'd, uh, you know, wouldn't make uh, mistakes selling too early or selling too late. And I'm kind of, I kind of agree with you there. I remember the the, the player strike. And I feel like the, the overproduction people kind of probably knew in the back of their minds. I know that the data wasn't out there. Um because you had to like go to a show to see the cards and you couldn't like actually see how many were truly available globally or even within the country um, on eBay. But the, I think the strike was definitely part of it as well. And a lot of people overlook that. I think this year, uh, this time around though, whenever the next bubble pops, I think it won't, I feel it won't be caused by overproduction. And I think Tops and Panini are starting to realize that too. Um, and they're probably starting to be a little bit more, you know, um, hot on the presses a little bit. Uh, but um, I think that there's, there could be other things that could lead to a crash before overprint, overprinting wood. And especially it, it's so hard to, to not overprint right now, just because you know, people are going to buy this stuff and they're going to pay whatever it costs. You have group breakers now, which are an excellent tool to pretty much open everything and make sure that everything is, there's not like a box left behind. Everything gets opened 
And the prices, um, people aren't as um, as price sensitive now because of the advent of, of group breaking. But I think, I think if there was if there was a crash in the next two or three months, if I had to guess what it would be caused by, I might choose um, the abundance of slabbed cards and maybe junky type cards in slabs or junk slabs. Some people have referred uh, to this era as the junk slab era. Um, some people have called it the the refractor or parallel era, but I think, I think sometimes, especially in the past, when the when the cost to grade was a little bit lower, I think people, as we as a market, have built in the cost of grading into any PSA nine or PSA ten. You know, I think people have made this mistake there, um, where they should let the the market dictate what the values of those slabs should be, um, and I think that it's dangerous to do that because. You know, the the longer we go on, the more obsolete, and um, it's almost like some of these players just fade into oblivion. They're just not hobby relevant anymore. So you shouldn't have to pay more than ten dollars for some of these slabs, even though the the cost to grade them at the time was ten bucks. Um, and the card might have been worth a dollar, maybe it was worth five bucks, but rot's worth a dollar now. I just think it's kind of dangerous to to allow the the market cap to grow so quickly, so fast with you know tens of millions of cards graded um, per year now, it seems like. Um, and a lot of it is complete trash. Like, um, I brought this up in videos before, but I feel like probably three out of four people that submit to PSA, and I'm guilty, and maybe you are to an extent as well, but we'll submit multiple copies of the same card of guys that we don't plan to hold forever. So, Nick Senzel. Exactly. So when those come back, we plan on selling those as quickly as possible. So just think about like how much value is out there in the backlog. Um, and a lot of people wait till the, the order comes back and it's like a way for us to generate some cash flow to buy some stuff we actually like. Uh, I think, I think PSA increasing their prices now to be like, you know, whatever it was like a 60% increase from what they were previously and probably about closer to, um, over a hundred percent over the last like 14 months. I think that that is a, a smart move, um, whether they did it on purpose, probably not, but to, to allow people to separate, um, market values of slabbed items versus, um, what it costs to grade, which ends up being built into the market value itself. I don't know. I don't know if that makes any sense to you, if that was a little too deep or maybe I didn't do a good job articulating it, but just because you pay $25 to, to grade something, even if you get a 10 in it, I don't think that should be necessarily worth 25 bucks. Um, if it's like a dollar or two raw, if it's something that really has no demand outside of, outside of the slab. Um, if it's something that's e either overproduced or, um, or if there's a, a super high pop on it, or if it's something that just doesn't have a whole lot of demand, if the player just doesn't have a lot, a lot of demand um, outside the slab, I just sometimes I mean, it's it, just going to be interesting going forward me. to see what like these prices will be though, because obviously people send in less, so right. I don't know. Like, if there's someone who's a decent rookie, and there's only a couple of them on there because only a few people send them in, I feel like they're gonna, you know, this will be where they list them on eBay for like ninety nine ninety nine or best offer, even though it should be like. 25 30 bucks at most and someone will most likely end up paying it because people still are gonna i mean it might take a while but right now people are still addicted to having their cards in those slabs so uh, it's gonna be interesting yeah, that, 
That's a good point. Yeah, if anything, it could boost up the prices of PSA 10s even more. I have no idea what happens. I, I just look back at like the time three or four years ago when the hobby was much simpler. And we all had like multipliers. Well, I did. I used a multiplier. I forget what it was, what it was at the time, but from a raw to a BGS 9.5 to a PSA 10. And it didn't matter to me. It didn't matter at all what the, the card was worth raw. If it was a $10 card raw, a $1 card raw, or a $150 card raw. You used to see the same multipliers of like, you know, two or three X to get to a PSA 10. But over the last year, from raw to PSA 10 for a super like low end card, the multipliers are insane. It doesn't make any sense. It's because people are building in the cost of grading. And I just don't think um, that's smart. That's prudent to do in the long term for the hobby. It's just amazing how expensive some PSA 9s have gotten and not like super sensitive cards. I mean, even things like the Fernando Tatis uh, Chrome Update Rookie Debut that I know you touched on in a recent video. Like you look up some of the nines and it's like, I could easily buy that card raw and it's it's not guaranteed to be a nine, but there's a very, very good chance it's going to be a nine if it's not a 10. And I just see it's just crazy sometimes some of the prices you see. Indeed. I think uh, another thing that'll be interesting, and of course this is a few years away but all these young players right now that are being bought up you know with this new wave of collector slash investor um and even just like the base rookie cards at like 30 50 100 dollars for psa 10s you know what happens in three to five years if these guys don't pan out if they're proven not to be superstars borderline even stars i mean we've seen that come and go over the years too i mean you think about you know 20 years ago some of the big guys in the hobby and a lot of them are no longer uh big guys in the hobby your your carrie woods your travis lee your eric chavez your miguel tejada some of those guys from like the late 90s i mean they were they were big time cards and now you know they're just a couple dollars so uh will that drive people away too and cause kind of some market changes uh if it drives those people away so th there's so many factors that go into it of course yeah there, there's always a natural like hype curve attached to all players where they're 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 valued or, or um they're trading at or selling at a um a rationally high level for the early part of their career although they haven't proven much they don't have a ton of accomplishments but yeah, I see what you're saying. And I was talking to somebody earlier today. <clears throat> I saw on eBay a uh, Buster Posey Bowman Chrome autograph first year. Uh, I think it was a BGS 9.5, maybe a BGS 9, but it was a blue number to 150, sold for under a thousand bucks. And that's a guy that a lot of people <clears throat> think is going to be in the Hall of Fame someday. And then I also look at people on Facebook. If you go to any Facebook, Facebook group that's baseball focused and you just drop in a line that says, hi, I'm looking for Bobachet, or I'm looking for insert the player that, where they made their rookie debut within the last couple of years. I'm looking for Fernando Tatis Jr. And then you won't be able to even scroll to the bottom of how many people respond with different cards, <laughs> different variations. Um, there's just a ton of people that are sitting on these cards and hoping to cash in someday. So yeah, I mean, and Tatis might not be the right example because maybe he pans out and maybe he sustained some of these values. But if you're to compare Buster Posey and all of his meaningful cards, 
and you were to take like the market cap, so however many exist in each grade and multiply it by the current market value, you add that across all of his rookie cards that exist or prospect cards that exist, and you compare that to a Boba Shet and do the same exercise, like would would the aggregate market cap of Buster Posey even exceed like 5% of Boba Shet? Would it exceed at 1% of Boba Shet? Um, maybe not. And, and maybe there's, you know, clearly there's, close to 99 times as much demand for Boba Shett right now, but in five years and in, in 10 years and in 15 years, it would be um, very unlikely that was still the case. Yeah. The, uh, the hype train is definitely always on the young and up and coming players, generally speaking. And then you have guys like Albert Pujols who get kind of forgotten for a number of years and, you know, rightfully so he kind of wasn't uh he obviously compiled great numbers, but was no longer really a relevant star player in baseball still you know chugging along putting up some numbers but playing on the west coast not playing in the postseason not putting up those uh mvp caliber seasons now finally uh some people have caught it you know he's caught the collector's attention and his stuff is uh certainly boosted up in value especially his rookie stuff specifically uh you know in the last few months but sometimes these guys just kind of get lost in the hobby they get forgotten about to a degree yeah, Pujols was a great example of somebody that was undervalued and forgotten about. People forgot how good he was. He was um, what a lot of people consider the best right-handed hitter in their generation. Um, whether you consider Trout as part of that generation is a separate story, I guess. Um, but yeah, MLB and other sources posted the first 10 years of his career versus Trout's career, compared them looking at just like the offensive numbers, and, and Pujols blew him out of the water. Pujols also had... Um, many more games played many more at bats because Trout got called up late in 2011. He, uh, he was uh, victimized by the, uh, or he, uh, he, he was part of the, the shortened season, of course, last year with, with COVID. Um, but yeah, you can't take that away from pools. And if you were to look at like the non-counting stats, like the OPS, uh, the batting average, I believe, as well as the OBP, um, probably especially the OPS, um, and the slugging percentage pools. Uh, yeah, he did very well. Um, the uh, if you look at their 10 years, like with Fangraph's war, it's actually not that he's pretty close to Trout. Maybe they're like 10 points apart. But if you look at baseball reference war um, calculated differently, then uh, I think Pools is around 100 um, probably in his career. Maybe not through his first 10 years, but there might be a, a wider gap with one of those measures. Um, yeah. So when like Trout's values, people saw like, wait, Trout's base rookie is how much and his gold rookie is how much? So, like, why shouldn't pools be half of that? Um, what I have an issue with is wh why now are people realizing that? Um, it, like, <laughs> we're further and further removed from him actually being a productive player. He's been um, an average or below average player. Pools has for, you could argue, like, the last four years, six years, maybe six and a half years. Um, and, and you could look at his first 10 years all you want. But at the end of the day, you know, when we look back at the stat books 20 years from now, we're going to be evaluating him based on the, the total equation, based on his complete career accomplishments. Um, one of the nice things about David Ortiz is he, you know, he didn't put up the same career numbers as Pools, of course, but he played at a very high level late in his career. Um, was he helped by steroids? <laughs> Probably, but was Pools helped by steroids? Can you say uh, definitively no? Um, it's just, so hard. And then you, you, when you start to like go back and forth on the steroids debate, then it always leads you to Barry Bonds and being like, damn, he was really good. huh?" It's uh, 
I guess it's just interesting how the hobby just picks and chooses uh, certain players to get excited about, and sometimes at odd times, and sometimes maybe it's just momentum building. You know, someone just kind of puts forward like, hey, this guy's a little cheaper, and then more and more people go, you know what, you're right, and they just jump on it, and who knows, maybe there's some manipulation involved too. It's You can't really uh, count anything out now because things have just been so... uh, so nutty for the last year. I mean, anything you think can't happen, it it somehow finds a way to happen. Things continue to just go bonkers. And you get to a point in time where David Portnoy, Allen and Ginter base cards start selling for 50 bucks. And then Allen and Ginter egg cards suddenly are $50. (laughs) What is going on? Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, um, it's crazy to see the pattern that started in what early January where this kind of explains pools and each row a little bit, like they're like two of the more meaningful baseball players from the last 20 years. So I kind of get that. So it started with like the, the tier one guys and then the tier one, a guys, or however you want to classify them. We saw that with basketball a bit too, with Tim Duncan, um, <laughs> his cards went absolutely berserk and everybody around him, probably Steve Nash, Dirk Nowitzki and Vince Carter and Allen Iverson and, Man, I was watching some of the price increases with football and like Montana's second year card, Jerry Rice's second year cards. Insane, insane. Like five to six X, I feel like from December um, at some point. And I'm sure they've retraced a bunch like uh, some of the other cards we had talked about. But yeah, it's been it's been crazy to watch. Um, I thought I think we both thought we saw um, historic jumps in market value like last April through July. Um and maybe even August with, with football, but like what happened in January and February, I think that's, uh, that's completely unprecedented. Yeah. And like you said, it's just, it's, it's all over. Obviously the non-sports stuff has been uh, trending upward as well. And soccer cards and all this stuff has gone crazy. And that leads to, uh, you know, one of the ways people acquire cards, obviously people like to break stuff and breaking stuff Unless you're doing group breaks, which, of course, you're taking a chance. You're taking a chance all the time, but group breaks, you could get skunked with literally nothing. I mean, hobby boxes are, I mean, they're absolutely insane. You can't believe when you see, like, Donner's basketball dropping at $1,000 a box. Like, I feel like that would have been, like, an $80 product, if that, maybe even a $60 product, you know, five years ago. And, uh... Of course, people are chasing retail. Some people are chasing retail because they just want something to break that's affordable at 20 bucks. Of course, a lot of people are chasing it because they know they can flip it almost immediately for 60 80 $100. I know we talked about retail and the future of retail a few months ago on your channel, but I mean, has any, any thoughts on retail changed uh, in your mind or we just kind of continuing to roll along? Because I don't see how we're going to find anything more, see anything change in 2021 when I think it was Steel City I saw. They were pre-selling 2021 Topps Chrome baseball blaster boxes for like, it might have been like 50 bucks if yeah, I saw that 50. right. Yeah, 50 uh, well, when we talked about it on my channel, uh, the, the retail issues and what could happen in the future, um, I think you actually called it and I was like, well, technically 
Panini said that it's against Target corporate to put limits on how much people buy, but clearly that's not the case. Um, and that's happening. It's a store specific thing. It seems it's, it's very common in target. Uh, I, I haven't been to, um, maybe I've been to a target once since we last spoke for other reasons. I haven't been to a Walmart. I think I've heard that Walmarts are dried up based on people complaining on, on Facebook and stuff. Um, <laughs> it's funny. This is kind of off the topic, but on Facebook, people often complain that, Oh, if people stopped buying the, these products from flippers and we wouldn't have this issue to begin with, but it's like, you're not seeing the big picture. We all want and or need product. And even if we don't need it as much as you or the next guy, like we need a way to acquire it. We feel like we need a way to acquire it. And how else are we going to get it if hobby is unaffordable? And if there's nowhere else to get it other than paying um, higher prices from people that got the product either by luck, using a bot, stocking the vendors, abusing their uh, limit or however else they got it. I don't care. I just need it to the end of the day. You know, for me, I need it for my repack product. Um, if I'm going to look at it from the mindset of I'm a dealer and I'm a flipper, I need it to stay competitive with other people doing the same thing. Um, and and uh, <laughs> it's not, you can't fight city hall on that one. Um, but yeah, retail doesn't seem to be any better than it was. And unfortunately, and I'm seeing this as a, um, I have a subscription box offering, the rookie card explosion boxes I just brought up really quickly. And with, with that, um, I'm noticing that people are dropping their, their subscriptions. Um, I've lost more in the last two months than I have um, prior um, for a reason other than price increase month or the last time was really COVID where I've noticed like a lot of people dropping out. Uh, with COVID, it was probably obviously economic related, but this time, and people are sending me messages for why they're, they're leaving, you know, Phil, I really like your product. I had a blast opening it. It's not the pricing. It's not the product. It's that I've decided to scale back, or it's that I've decided that um, I'm going to leave the hobby um, or I'm going to have to really decide like what I want to focus on. Um, or this has just gotten too expensive for me and I don't know what to do. So I've got to eliminate one thing, which, you know, they're eliminating opening wax, which I, I completely respect that. I get it. Um, but it's, it's unfortunate because, um, the people that are, you know, getting the retail, um, there's either not enough where they have to mark up prices or they're just marking up prices. And, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's something that it might not affect me directly, but it certainly affects me indirectly with, um, people leaving the hobby. And that's not a good thing for anyone. If people are getting priced out, it's not like collectors are very important to this hobby they're the the stickiest part you know because the investors at the end of the day have a time horizon it might be five years might be 10 years might be 15. you know their plans to sell at some point and um the collectors don't think of it that way at all and we know that because we have a lot of friends that are collectors and you're a collector yeah i mean collectors are the most important part of the hobby because if there's no one collecting then there's no one to pay those prices that people are looking yeah. to uh sell them for so Hopefully, you know, most people who drop off are temporary, but we'll see how things develop. It'll be interesting to see uh, going forward, at least with baseball stuff, because from what I've noticed, uh, basketball, of course, is the first thing that's out the door with the retail stuff, right? If there's a, if there's a limit, first choice is basketball, second choice is the football products, you know, the, at least the semi-higher end ones. 
and then baseball kind of comes in third, generally speaking. Of course, it's going to depend product to product, but I mean, that being said, 2021 tops, you can find it if you're, you know, hustle around or if you check often, because it, it won't necessarily be gone within 10 seconds of it going out, but it's not going to last more than a day. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens with some lower end products, something like, uh, tops opening day, which I'm sure is, you know, a few weeks, if not less, uh, away from being released. And even products like gypsy queen and stuff like that, that tops heritage, usually pretty accessible at retail, but I got to imagine it won't last because even those prices are up. So we'll, uh, We'll see, but the premium products for sure will uh, continue to be as difficult as they have been, in in my opinion. Yeah, and, and market values of products that were released within the last year um, kind kind of justify the more recent print run increases by the manufacturers. Like I think a lot of us balked at 2019 Topps Chrome Update. Oh, they printed 67% more than 2018, but 2018 had a, a real nice rookie class, and 2019 has nothing except for Vlad and a few debuts. And that product sat at Target, as we both know, for a few months. You could have gotten it at, at Target during uh, discount periods or 15 bucks a blaster. And now that's up uh, six to seven times, 120 bucks within 13, 14 months, at least. You know, it, maybe even in the shorter span, it's up like six to six X. It's 120 bucks now for a blaster of what was supposed to be or what we all tagged as a garbage product. Um, people on Blowout said they wouldn't open it. And um, they produce too much, and that's so dumb of Tops to do that. But like, if you print if you print less um, than what they're printing, then it's not going to make the situation any better for the folks that are getting priced out and leaving the hobby because they can't find affordable product. You know, it's the exact opposite of what those people want and need. Um, actually, it's going to be interesting what happens going forward. There, I feel like there's more wax being hoarded than ever i mean obviously there's always people who save wax and don't break it and it you know you can find you know if you look hard enough or you're willing to spend enough you can find wax from the 50s you know it's it's pretty rare but it, it it's gonna be interesting to see what happens with this current day stuff because i feel like there's a lot of people who in the last year or two have been kind of just buying up stuff and they might sell some stuff here and there they might open some stuff but they're kind of saving a lot of it and uh what happens as that stuff starts to come to market more and more or has enough of it just vanished that and there's such a demand that it does continue to rise. I mean, you look at some of the Panini Prism basketball boxes from a few years ago and it's like it's mind numbing how expensive a, a value slash cello pack or even the blaster boxes, twenty dollar packs that sell for like five, six hundred dollars. It's it's crazy. I mean, I remember seeing you know, prison basketball from a few years ago, all over a Walmart. I mean, at, at this point, the probably would have been like $30,000 profit if I would, could go back in time and buy it. <laughs> and it's just like the retail stuff is bonkers and it's, it's a whole new game. I mean, prison football used to sit on the pegs, the value packs for weeks on end. You could buy a pack, you know, two, three times a week. If you were, happen to be in a store often enough, it's, it's a whole new world. Yeah, it's interesting to think about. Like, people always try to outsmart other people in the hobby by zagging versus zigging, et cetera, and being a better prospector than everybody else. Um, getting to that, you know, acting on information before other people and being good at picking out cards and grading them for money. Um, 
you know, it takes a lot of time, takes a lot of skill. The learning curve steep. This whole time you could have just sat on like retail wax from 2012, 2013. That would have been a better strategy than probably almost anything you could think of. And, and you know what, even 2014 wax, 2015 wax, 16 wax, uh, maybe not for all sports clearly because of uh, draft classes and such, but like you look at like, like a strategy, like holding all of tops, Chrome baseball, like any year, any configuration, that stuff has disappeared. It's gone. And I think you brought up something like, you know, if you had, if you had um, still had your stash of wax, it'd be worth 30K. I think those rising increases, those parabolic rising or exponential um, increases over time, that's enough to hopefully like get some of those people, those hoarders that have all that wax, all those stashes to come out of their caves to finally sell those things. So it's the greatest mystery. You know, we'll never know for sure. Um, unless something crazy happens, we might know sooner rather than later. Uh, but I, um, I don't know. I think the stuff like retail wax from the Zion year, if you were to look at like the prism and the optic stuff, the stuff that from a retail perspective, even a hobby, it's already like gone five X, six X, seven X, some cases, 10 X, maybe. I don't think there's really a whole lot left just because people would have had a chance to sell in like triple four X, like even the people that bought, um, from the original flippers who had made three to four X, there's been like multiple sets of people in that lineage that have been able to three or four X their money, it seems. So, um, yeah, but I, there's, there's certain products from the Zion year, like, um, well, hoops, um, uh, the hoops premium brand, uh, the Chronicles and some of the other stuff that came out later is a little bit more mass produced. You haven't seen those, seen those crazy increases yet from where they started. Um, from a um, secondary market perspective, the prices have been somewhat close to where they started, maybe, or even a little less, a little more. There's, yeah, there's probably a ton of that stuff. And I think Panini, and, and um, I've seen him on YouTube videos, admit um, the amount of, they admitted like the, I forget what the context was or what the what they said exactly, but something like, like more than triple the amount of retail from the Luca year to the Zion year. From 18 to 19, they more than tripled, if not quadrupled, maybe even more, um, the print run for some of the some of the retail configurations and some of that wax. And yet it all still vanishes away, and the prices <laughs> aren't cheap. So there's still yeah. obviously plenty of demand for it right now, and I think part of that is the ridiculous prices of hobby products are just. I mean, it's unbreakable. I mean, like optic football, I used to break a couple boxes every year just for fun, and it's like I remember paying like sixty to eighty dollars, and this year, optic football was like eight hundred dollars a box. I was like, nah, it's all right. I'll pass. There's yeah. no reason. Yeah, <laughs> no reason. You're like, yeah, but legitimately gonna get you theoretically would get like fifty dollars worth of cards. I mean, maybe some of the rookies are worth a little more, and of course you could hit that you know two thousand dollar card, but. If you're expecting to hit that $2,000 card, you're going to be quite disappointed very, very often. Yeah, one, one of the hard things I think about the new PSA um, prices and grading prices across the board right now aren't, aren't as cheap as they were six months ago, for sure. Um, CSG, I think, has a pretty decent bulk rate going on with no subgrades, but we'll see how long that lasts. <laughs> um, the, uh, the, 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 the current prices for the top grading companies being like, 20 to 25 $30 a piece. Um, and that's like the bulk rate. That's like the ultra modern rate. Um, I think it's going to hurt if it hasn't already some of the lower end products um, where most of the value that you get back from it 
is comprised of base cards and base cards that might no longer make sense to send a PSA with any service level or any other grading company for that matter. Um, so if you think about like top series one, top series two and tops update, like not saying these products won't hold value, just saying that people are going to think about them differently. Me, for instance, I decided not to open a jumbo case. So I'm like, yeah, you know, I could sell these raw, but I'm sure the values in raw form have dropped over the last like, you know, four weeks or whenever it was uh, released because there's a higher supply in the market with the same demand. So prices would make sense that they, they would drop. Um, and if, do I really want to wait? like 14 months or whatever to get these things graded. And, you know, it's going to be even harder to recoup my money because of that, that cost, you know, I might hit a parallel, but the chances of hitting a meaningful parallel are few and far between. But if you compare that with like tops, Chrome, um, especially Bowman products, most of the value from Bowman is usually in the, the parallels or in the autographs. Um, you used to be able to say that with tops Chrome, but you don't really get too many, uh, refractors anymore <laughs> and the, yeah, the autos tend to, to not be so good. Um, and there's a, there's a lower floor on tops Chrome autographs, rookie autographs versus Bowman, I feel, but, um, maybe, maybe the pendulum will swing a little bit more in Bowman's favor. Not saying it'll be a better value, um, than tops, even after price increases with regards to what you rip. But I'm saying the, the gap will have shrunken and you could maybe, maybe make the uh, same argument with, say, football, uh, looking at Donruss or even Prism or Optic versus Select or Contenders. I don't know if you have any thoughts there. I mean, it makes sense. Uh, a lot of that value in even base tops cards was, you know, ripping the hot rookies and sending them off, getting them graded for seven, eight, ten bucks, getting them back in a couple months and. Uh, obviously, you're going to have a few guys that don't work out, but even them, you can generally recover your money. But the big guys, um, as of late, you know, even last year, last year was kind of a special circumstance because of PSA closing down. There wasn't a whole lot in the market, but I mean, Kyle Lewis cards were selling for like 100 bucks easy. Uh, some of the other lower tiered rookies, you know, 50, 60 bucks. I, I mean, Brendan McKay at one point was like, and Nico Horner, they were like 35, 40 bucks in PSA 10s. But I mean, if you're spending $25 to grade cards, I guess there'll be less supply, but it's definitely a hell of a chance to take, you know, if you're sending one or two cards and you feel really good about them, it's not a big deal, but you know, picking out six rookies and sending 10 of each, you know, 60 times 25 plus a year wait. And who knows what happens to those players doesn't right. really it, make a lot of sense, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's one thing if you're opening up like 2019 Series 2 and you you see what the current market values of those players are and you see that they're more established. They've all made their major league debuts and a lot of them have played in at least one full season. You know, 2018 Tops Update and a lot of these guys have PSA 10s that justify the values of sending them to PSA already. And you kind of know, you kind of know like, you know, they're not going to sink below a certain level. Um, you're paying a lot more for those products, but I don't think this really affects them, the PSA price increase, where it could is like what you said, the 2021 Series 1, there's a bunch of rookies. You don't really know which one's going to lead the class. I have an idea of who might, um, and I guess we'll talk about that in a little bit. But you, you don't really know. There's a lot of depth, but you might be sending the, right, the wrong guys in, and that could cost you down the line and tie up your capital capital along the way as you wait. Yeah, and the long wait times uh, doesn't help. You, know, you take that gamble if you're getting it back in two months because at least you have a season or maybe a hot streak to capitalize on it. But if you have to wait a year, that's uh, kind of a tough 
tough pill to swallow. Uh, real quick, just want to kind of roll through some of kind of the state of grading right now. We've touched on this a little bit, even just a few seconds ago, a little bit. But I mean, I'd say there's six main grading companies. Obviously, PSA is the established top grading company, whether you consider them the best at it or you trust them the most. Either way, like regardless, you can't, there's no way you can state that they are not by far the most popular of the grading companies and their resale value, their market price, you know, just shows that. And that's why they were able to uh, increase prices substantially uh, once again. And, uh, you know, they still have a monster backlog. And of course, a lot of things going on with the company, with the sale and such. Uh, SGC just had a price increase. They're up to $25. They're They've obviously been around a long time. They are the leader for sure in uh, pre-war. You can make the case vintage as well. Uh, you know they've made their mark a little bit with modern. A lot of people sending stuff in. They're at twenty-five dollars, which is quite expensive, and obviously much more than it was just again a few months ago. But right now, their turnaround time about twenty-five days. So if they can keep to that, there's there is some value to paying that price and getting the cards back that quickly. BGS they uh, continue to kind of roll along. They certainly were uh, at least it feels to me like they've decreased in popularity uh, over the last couple of years. I don't know if that's true or if it's just kind of my own perception. Uh, I feel like they were a bigger deal, but obviously they're still getting tons of business because they're still like an eight month wait. They're, they increase their prices a bit. I think their cheapest price now is like 20 bucks, and a lot of the levels are 30 and 40 And, of course, the high price stuff is just crazy priced. We talk, touched on HGA a little bit. I mean, 20 bucks to get in at the slowest service if you can get in due to the the way they have things going, uh, kind of creating demand as they cap the number of submissions per week. Um, a lot of their services are 30 and $40. They look great, but I don't know how uh, established their grading is. I think it's going to take a while to uh, kind of figure out how accurate and how consistent and how good they are at grading, but certainly people love the look of the slabs, and sometimes, uh, especially with less seasoned collectors, it's just whatever looks shiniest you know, is the best and people throw money at it. CSG, they, uh, they do a lot of stuff, big company do paper currency, comic books, uh, coins, whole ton of stuff. They've gotten into the trading card game, the sports trading card grading game. And, uh, I think they probably wish they started a month or two later cause they are now the cheapest option on the block. Uh, they do $8, $8 bulk. So I would assume they will have a monster backlog soon and they will have to double and triple prices soon. Um, I think their standards, standard service is like 15 bucks. And then obviously they have other levels and little things you can tack on as well. And even GMA who, uh, takes a lot of criticism, <laughs> they, uh, they're now, I think for 10 bucks is their cheapest price and it's a 90 day turnaround. I think their standard service is like 50 or 60 days at 12 bucks. Uh, I will say they do, I believe have new labels in the work, new flips and they actually look pretty professional. So they at least will look better. Um, that current flip is not very good. And you know, take it for what it will, uh, whether you, uh, believe in their grading or not, but Phil, any, uh, any thoughts on the state of grading? I know you gave some thoughts already on the price increases and how they were to be expected and 
you know, probably necessary, but with, uh, you know, these six companies that get the most attention out there, um, uh, is there any one that, you know, kind of interests you more than the others? Or uh, obviously we know PSA is kind of, they've established themselves for now as uh, number one for sure and for the foreseeable future, but certainly things can change. But just wanted to get your thoughts on some of these companies and how much more room is there for, you know, potentially other companies to jump in. Well, I think GMA's uh, current wait time of 90 days tells us all we need to know. Yes, there's room for more companies to come in. But um, so PSA versus Beckett's very interesting. Um, clearly, PSA has been getting more business than Beckett. Um, they're cranking out more slabs than Beckett, and they have a, a longer backlog, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Resale values, we kind of know where they stand. We see uh, the momentum is in favor of PSA. There, there have been a lot of people that have seen, you know, the – the, the 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 multiplier of PSA 10 versus BGS nine and a half continue to expand. Um, I remember when I got back into the hobby in full swing in 2014, the BGS nine and a half was very similar to the price of a PSA 10. And if anything, it'd be like a 10% difference. And I'm not talking like a true gem BGS nine and a half. I'm talking like a, you know, minimum gem. Um, well now for, Almost all sports, baseball is probably the last one with Bowman Chromes. A lot of Bowman Chrome collectors prefer uh, BGS slabs. Um, now you're seeing like 2X um, in a lot of cases. Um, I, I thought it always made sense for like the the 80 stuff, right? really anything before 2000 where PSA is known to be a, a bit more strict than most of the other grading companies. But yeah, the, the 2X thing, I see people on Facebook saying like, well, I'm going to keep on buying BGS 9.5 because they're undervalued. Versus PSA 10s. Well, they're probably not wrong. BGS is a pretty good grading company, and technically a 9.5 is a gem mint on their scale. But but my issue with that is, what if Beckett stays undervalued? And I'm specifically talking about 9.5s here. Although you could make a similar argument for BGS 9s versus PSA 9s. Um, I, I can't see anything that would point to the gap narrowing between a 9.5 and a PSA 10, you look at the two companies, you really just look at senior leadership, even before the buyout with Nat Turner. But now, I mean, it's kind of a no brainer that PSA just has a stronger company with a, you know, uh, maybe better priorities that are more in line with what the hobby wants, um, better capacity to, to make change um, and, and to get ahead and to scale. So, yeah, I'm not really feeling too bullish about BGS 9.5 right now, except when it's a low population card. Um, I feel like in some cases, it's just just buy the fucking card. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to drop that. Uh, just buy the card with like some of the stuff that's numbered to 500 or 1,000 and fewer where there's very few PSA 10s in existence. Yeah, I'll continue to buy 9.5s over PSA 9s. There's a lot fewer of them. And for the most part, they're cards in better condition and they're more sought after now. And I think they always will be regardless of what happens at Beckett. Um, also BGS pristines, you know, people laugh. They say it's a gimmick, uh, probably more so um, towards the BGS black label pristine, I guess. Um, and I can kind of see that argument a bit, but like BGS pristines, a lot of the times they will be like 5% or 10% as many versus PSA 10, you know, not in all cases. Sometimes they will be, half as many or a third as many, but in cases where BGS 10 pristines are far outnumbered by PSA 10s, um, I think that BGS 
pristines are a good a good candidates to go after like you look at like juan soto 2018 tops update or tops chrome update like that's a good example and i think you would have seen like a actually a multiplier um increase between uh 10 versus 10 over the last year uh, and a lot of that has to do with the uh the print runs probably um being a little bit more lopsided with regards to you know the the bgs pristine rate versus the the gem uh, the PSA 10 rate and however many are getting sent in. I guess you could make an argument that BGS is just a little less popular, but we'll let that be for now. But the other grading companies, um, so CGC is interesting. I A lot of people are uh, focused on HGA right now because they're flashy and, um, you know, the the CEO was a very, uh, very interesting character. And a lot of people thought that he was genuine, um, that I've seen him um, on other people's like live streams, podcasts, et cetera, videos. Uh, seems like a nice guy. The AI thing, I think that has um, drawn a lot of people in. Uh, I think it's unquestionably uh, a fact now that the AI bit was a little bit misleading in that, you know, they don't really have a whole lot of art- artificial intelligence right now. I think they're actually trying to build out software right now. Don't know the exact details on there. So at the risk of um, being wrong, I'll, I'll stop there. But I think it's more about the the subgrades, um, which actually provides more like validation to Beckett's grading system. The fact that not just them, it's CSG, they're bringing subgrades to the table. I don't know if it's the exact same um, structure as Beckett. I've seen like weird overall ratings versus like the subs. I know they're, they're grading the same four uh, criteria, but I don't know how they do like the calculation to find the overall grade. It might be a little bit different for, um, for uh, CSG, but I think that that is something that um, we ultra modern folks really like to see the subgrades because as the two of us know, Mike, like a PSA 10 versus a PSA nine, there's, there could be a lot that uh, makes up that difference. There could be, um, and I know we both like kind of like the SGC 9.5 tweener grade in between um, because, you know, a lot of cards, what 80, 90% of cards are going to be graded at least a PSA eight, maybe 60 to 70% of ultra modern cards are be graded at least a PSA nine or BGS nine. So it's nice to have something in between um, because there's a spectrum there for sure. Um, so CSG is interesting also because um, I think they, uh, they got some help. They hired graders directly from Beckett. So I think that helps. They might have more um, experience now technically than SGC on the modern side. I'm not sure, but um, you know, SGC is, is more known around vintage and I don't know who their you know, head graders are and what their experience is, experience is on the, the, the modern and ultra modern side. So CSG, I think is a nice dark horse. Um, you know, maybe the slabs aren't as nice looking, but a lot of the times it's an acquired taste. I've always felt like PSA was an acquired taste for most people in the hobby. Um, I don't think the slabs are too pretty with like the bright red. Um, I know you'd probably disagree with me there, but uh, yeah, HDA, you talked about it, Mike, the uh, they're controlling their demand or not, they're, they're controlling the supply right now. So the supply demand equation is like uh, lopsided in their favor. So, and it, it's almost like warranting that their market values sell for close to PSA 10, just because there's more that people want than can have those slab cards in the secondary market or the ones that they're grading themselves. So we'll see how long that lasts. Um, you know, I don't see it changing in the immediate future because I think they're going to really slowly ramp up their business and what they're grading is so far below um, SGC Beckett and PSA now from a volumes perspective. Um, 
speak a little bit about uh, about uh, SGC now. They uh, they really uh, squandered an opportunity last year, uh, I would argue, with uh, with the modern business. You know, they asked for it. They said they were ready for it. And um, and all of a sudden they were underwater. They're overwhelmed. Um, talked to one guy. They said that they had to scale 10x in, in a few weeks. One guy said they scaled 10x over the course of three months. I don't know what happened. I know they suffered a lot of turnover, working long hours. I don't know how rewarding that was. But, you know, they're at the point where they um their vintage reputation might be uh vulnerable to um to reputational impact if they screw up again from the modern side and getting completely overwhelmed you know with psa sure their turnaround times suck they're terrible they're dreadful but they've never 2xed or 3xed over the course of two or three weeks you know that type of people have like a built-in expectation and with sgc you know, flippers were sending stuff to them because they thought that, you know, their time was valuable and at least they'd be able to get in and out of their position quite quickly. Well, that proved to not be the case because when they tried to sell their items, they weren't very liquid. So you had to auction them and they weren't selling for nearly as much as PSA when you auctioned them. So it was kind of a tough situation. Um, but um, yeah, people really value that time aspect with SGC. And I think a lot of people, uh, including me, I was like, well, you know, I'll only submit to SGC because I know they're twice as fast as PSA or three times as fast. But when you're taking, you know, five, six months, um, that's that's no longer fun. That's no longer cool, especially when the resale values are what they are. And I, I get that it's going to take some time for those to adjust. Maybe they never adjust. Who knows? <laughs> but um, so I was willing to give them a little bit of slack there. But uh, I think I think there was a PSA price increase in like midsummer, maybe July. And then they weren't. They didn't adapt fast enough. They could have done one of two things. They could have told people that their service levels were going to change. Um, probably the, the better decision would have been to increase prices to slow down the uh, the amount coming in. But I think it took them two or three weeks to kind of get their heads out of the water to apologize to people and say like, yeah, we really screwed up. Customer service is dead. Um, you know what? Good for them because they did have customer service for a few for a few months. And most of these grading companies... Um, the more established ones are complacent and have not had responsive people at all. So uh, with SGC, I think people are ready to give them one one more chance uh, from an ultra modern uh, from an ultra modern perspective. But uh, if they squander the next opportunity, that business might go somewhere else next time. Yeah, I think the uh, increased prices should should because who knows in today's market and who knows what the behavior. You can't really predict the behavior of. Uh people entering the hobby now because i mean who would have thought some of the prices we see on people spending on different items but i think with the price increase that should make most people i know for me personally i will certainly be more selective in what i send and you know if it's something that is of a decent value for my collection that i just i want to get it back in a month or so of course i'm going to send it there get it right back and if it's certain cards that have, you know, a decent value, again, obviously you're not going to be sending $10 cards. Um, that just doesn't make sense. But if you have, you know, $150 cards, $200 cards, if you can send them and get them back and, you know, you don't, you're not really worried about maximizing um, the value uh, of what it might get um, from PSA, like it, it certainly makes sense because, at least you'd have it back this baseball season. If you have baseball right now and you're sending it off to PSA, I mean, 
you're probably not getting it until spring training next year, in all honesty. So we'll see how things develop. But, um, I mean, there's options, and we need options, and there's obviously plenty to go around. Um, I think the thing with HGA right now, people are just, uh, again, of course, I understand like the uh, limited supply and such, but a lot of people, they're just saying, oh, man, the holders look so nice, the labels look so nice, and most do. But I, I don't hear people talking about the quality of grade, so I kind of wonder how many, you know, non-established <laughs> collectors point. and flippers are really thinking about that. I've seen a few polls on Twitter, like, oh, which are you more interested in, or which would you rather slab with, HGA or CSG? And it's like seventy percent HGA, and I'm just like, based on what? Like, I understand neither of them have a lot of slabs on the market, but putting a lot of blind faith in those grades there, so. We'll see how, obviously, it takes time to see things kind of unfold. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm in all these Facebook groups, and I see people being, like, reacting to the, and I don't know if they're just promoting HGA, but they're reacting to the resale values, and they show a picture of two comps, like a Luis Robert versus a PSA 10, and it's like, yeah, we get it. It's limited sample size, okay? <laughs> Rating is tough. It's going to be an uphill battle for them. Like, let's not make any judgments on them yet. You know, let's let's try to collect a little bit more information before we start to overreact based on an example of a couple comps. But you know what? Good for them. Uh, so far, what they're doing is working. And they've had, uh, well, other than the mistakes they've made on, like, flips, misspelling names and getting players wrong and stuff like that. I think overall, they would say that uh, their first few months have been successful. Yeah, so far, so good. And plenty to uh, – plenty of <laughs> – New grading developments, I'm sure, to come. We'll see how all these companies uh, continue to uh, handle the influx of grading. I mean, I I don't see the demand for grading really going away. I think it's just going to shift. I'm sure, you know, certain companies are going to get bombarded. And will they be able to handle it? We'll see. Before we uh, wrap things up here, Phil, uh, obviously the 2021 baseball season is coming up. We're only a few short weeks away, and then uh, they'll be back on the field, hopefully for a full season. That's the way things, you know, are planned to be and look. Uh, just want to get your thoughts on the 2021 rookie class, now specifically the rookie card class. Obviously, Series One baseball has been out for a few weeks. You got a few guys that people are chasing. You got a lot of other guys that people are kind of thinking about because there's just that appetite to uh, kind of chase and look at different rookie cards and prospect and I'm sure series two and tops update will have plenty as well. You know, we had a lot of guys make major league debuts last year, so there should be plenty of rookies to choose from, uh, in 2021. Any standouts to you? Yeah, well, I mean, there's, there's a few, um, I'd say like the top three guys for me would be Dylan Carlson, Mount castle, then probably Alec Bohm. I know as a Phillies fan, you probably put Bohm probably at the top of the list, but I like probably Carlson the most because um, he's got power to all fields. He, uh, he's got a nice, easy short swing. He can play all three outfield positions. He's, he's got a little bit of speed, too. I think he could have a pretty good year. He, uh, you could argue he broke out in like the last couple weeks. Um, I don't know how good the pitching competition was, but he had a pretty good uh, September, I believe, last year. Um, Alec Bohm, or sorry, Mountcastle is the next guy I said. Uh, really, really good uh, power hitter. And um, he can probably hit for average too. And the walk rate last year and a limited sample size in the majors is higher than what he could within what he uh, showed in, in the minor leagues. So he could be an interesting one. 
um, good ballpark there with Mountcastle and um, Alec Bohm. Um, I, I don't know how much power is in his profile. So if you look at like the the, the um, expert like metric systems or um, projection systems, like they don't really have him for more than 25 home runs. I was talking to Ed West Griff a little bit yesterday, and I guess if he does um, if he does like muscle up a little bit. He's got like a wiry frame, but if he adds some muscle, then maybe he can um, hit more home runs. I know he hit the ball really hard last year. He, his average is really high. I just don't know how much of that was a like symptom of a small sample size and um, maybe some batted ball luck. Uh, Christian Pache, he's interesting because like I, I compare him to Francisco Lindor in that when they were minor leaguers, they, didn't, they weren't really expected to hit for power. Their main attribute was um, main contribution was supposed to be from the defensive side. But Pache, he's a guy that some people think will develop power in the majors. And as a like plus plus defender, that could be a very meaningful player. Uh, Joey Bart strikes out too much, but insane hitting talent. He's a little bit older. Um, Universal DH should help him. He's a he's a catcher. Um, and um, there's a lot of pitchers in the product that I would stay away from right now for the most part, like Luis Patino, Nate Pearson. Um, Ian Anderson, I probably like the most. He, he showed a decent amount last year. Sixto Sanchez could be pretty good. Probably won't get a whole lot of strikeouts. Uh, the other guys in the product, Nick Madrigal, uh, great contact hitter, but might not ever hit more than like 10 home runs in a season. Um, so he could be interesting because he could have some like pretty high average years. Uh, Andres Jimenez is somewhat interesting. Luis Garcia might be one of the younger rookies in the, the class. And if, um, you know, if he can emulate Juan Soto, and uh, take some things from him, which I think that's what he's modeling his swing after. Then uh, there's there's not many more guys to to better to to imitate. Um, and we saw that with was it Castellanos, Nick Castellanos, and uh, JD Martinez kind of did that with Miguel Cabrera. They uh, they had some pretty good success there. Yeah, I mean, there's a ton of players, a lot of depth, so it should at least provide some interesting. Uh some interesting watching and development this year. There's usually a couple guys that kind of come out of nowhere, guys who overperform, so that could spike some values. Uh, Joe Adele, I didn't – did you mention him? Like, what are your thoughts on Joe Adele? I know he struggled quite a bit last year, but – Yeah, I, I didn't have the list in front of me, but, yeah, I, I should have brought up Joe Adele. Um, real, real – he's got a lot of struggles right now with uh, seeing breaking balls, um, something we see a lot from young hitters. Uh, something that sometimes they make adjustments with, uh, and sometimes it takes them longer. Sometimes they never figure it out, but Joe Adele of all the players in the class probably has the, um, the most well-rounded skill set, uh, maybe the highest ceiling too. He didn't really do it in the minor leagues, but he's a guy that people expect at some point, you know, still really young, but they expect him to eventually contribute with power uh, center fielder with a, I think he has a cannon of an arm, I believe. Um, so eventually Mike Trout won't play center field anymore and, um, might be able to hit for average. I mean, right now the, the angels, I think at least the last time I checked, they kind of needed a leadoff hitter. I don't know if David Fletcher is that now, but he, uh, he's not going to be the leadoff hitter anytime soon with his on base percentage. I mean, he's a guy that strikes out even in the minor leagues, like three and a half times more than he walked. Uh, that's, uh, that's like Luis Robert level. And, um, Usually not um, not a, a, a successful equation that translates to success in the majors, at least right away. So he's got some adjusting to do. I don't know if he's going to be useful this year. He's probably going to start in the minor leagues. 
maybe he figures it out eventually. Uh, a lot of these guys um, with these high ceilings, you know, coming in as a top two or three overall prospect, they do figure it out um, unless there's some injury issue. But sometimes it just takes a little bit longer for some folks. Yeah, and there's a lot to look forward to in, you know, the baseball rookie card class because we got Cabrian Hayes. He had a really strong, you know, brief. Of course, everyone sees him as brief in 2020, but I believe he'll be in Series 2 tops and, of course, other products going forward. And then there's just this this stack of guys that may or may not make Major League debuts, and depending on when they do, you know, could see themselves in potentially a tops update. You know, Wander Franco, will he uh, come up this year? Will he come up early enough? Uh, obviously, the Rays didn't find it necessary or him important enough to be part of the postseason slash World Series roster last year, even though he was eligible, which, you know, God knows they could have used any offense that they could have gotten. Jared Kelenic, uh you know, he's been a he's been a kind of a top prospect for a while, but really getting a lot of attention in Seattle. Julio Rodriguez, is he someone that, you know, could make the jump this year? So there's a lot of really big names that uh, we could still potentially see in products. Andrew Vaughn, I think Andrew Vaughn has a chance to make the team. I'm not sure how he's performed mm-hmm. in spring training, but I know there was a lot of talk of him uh, being part of the White Sox opening day roster at least at one point. So, you know, if that were to happen, he'd be like a Series 2 candidate. So just you know, stacks of young players. And obviously, as we talked about earlier uh, in the show, people love the goats and they love the young guys who have shown flashes of brilliance, but really haven't proven themselves. That seems to be where the attention in the hobby uh, often goes. So uh, with that being said, I mean, the baseball products could be uh, pretty interesting this year. Probably expensive, of course, but a lot of uh, <laughs> players to kind of keep an eye on. And, you know, sometimes there's a, a chance to pick up singles when everyone's, uh, you know, forking over money for breaks or uh, boxes or, you know, jumping on slab cards. Sometimes you you might be able to pick up some of these guys uh, raw, you know, fair prices. Yeah, yeah. Jared Kellenick, he's one to keep an eye on because, um, well, <laughs> prior to the GM Mather, whatever his name was saying the, the ridiculously dumb things publicly. Well, I guess it was privately, but they got leaked um, about manipulating um, service time with several players in Kellenick's case, particularly, you know, he's a guy that despite, you know, him having very few games of experience in, in a ball, it's not fair to say that because of last year with COVID, he made some real strides last year too. He beefed up. Kellenick's a guy to watch. Now, he recently hurt himself, abductor strain. I don't know how serious that is. Um, I assume opening day would have been in jeopardy regardless because it wasn't a sure thing that he was going to be in the roster. Um, But keep an eye on him because if he gets called up sometime in April, he could probably miss series two, but he could be in tops chrome. And then maybe all of a sudden the, the $50 price point for blasters at Steel City, maybe that's not a bad price to pay. Um, given Cabrian Hayes is also in that product who you mentioned, guy that nobody's talking about, doesn't help that he's on the Pirates. But if you look at his Bowman Chrome autograph, it's in, I think, 2015 Bowman draft. It's selling for the same price, basically, as Dylan Carlson, who I call the top guy in Series 1. So who knows? I mean, this could be a year, a rare year, kind of like 2018, where Series 1, Series 2, and Update are all strong products. Um, Wanda Franco, he gets called up. Um, like you said, you know, it, <laughs> They could have really used him last year in the at, towards the end of the season as well as the playoffs. The fact that they didn't use him, it shows that they're probably preserving his playing time. They had no intention of him starting this year because they want that extra year 
um, which means that he's going to have to wait a couple weeks into April. But he's also a guy where it's not just about the um, the control. It's also about the money. So that's where the Super 2 deadline comes into play, which is in early June. <laughs> and Tampa Bay it has shown the knack to wait longer than just about any team in calling up their prospects, no matter how ready or developed they are. And uh, so we might have to wait till till June for Wander, which means that, unfortunately, there'd be a good chance that he misses all of this year's flagship releases, which would suck, but it's a, a real possibility, I think. Well, at least you can look forward to the Tops Now call-up card and then, you know, him headline in 2022, uh, Top Series 1. Whatever sells product. Yep. Well, anyway, Phil, it's been a blast talking for an hour and 20 minutes, kind of going over this... Uh, crazy hobby that you know just continues to excel and we'll see what the future holds uh hopefully we do another episode uh, a little quicker than this one took a took a full year to get back together but hope to uh you know maybe chat a couple months into the baseball season and kind of reevaluate how things uh have developed and how they're going yeah definitely would like to get back on here mike thanks for having me on i had a blast all right phil Thanks for joining again. Thank you to everyone listening. Appreciate you taking some time out of your day to listen to the show. Uh, check out Phil's channel over on YouTube. It's Filmington. You can check it out. There'll be a description in the YouTube link to this. And, uh, of course, if you're li- listening on any of the other platforms, check out YouTube. Another great part of the hobby. Uh, a lot of information to be found, especially over on Filmington's channel. Have yourselves a great one. Mm-hmm.